You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. So yesterday, uh, my family and I, we um, unfortunately had a family member pass this last weekend, and so it was kind of unexpected. We made our journey up to Minnesota, and it was, it was a good celebration of life, and I'm very thankful for uh, my great uncle, who, who uh, was like the wildest, craziest, funniest person you ever meet. Um, and then afterwards, we went to uh, their, his granddaughter's house, and it was, it, was, it was really nice just to spend time with family in an unhurried way. Someone bought Famous Dave's, and so I got to eat as, as much meat as I wanted, and it was awesome. And um, my, my family was there. My family's joined us me this morning. And my, uh, anytime I'm with my family, it's nice because I can take kind of just like a, not a full back step, but like a half back step away from parenting as intensely. And so my, my mom, uh, my, my son, uh, Winston, have like a special connection. He, he like screams and cries for Oma all the time. And yesterday, uh, my, my mom and my dad were playing with him in the front yard. And they decided that, hey, let's put him on this tree branch. And they were there to protect him, make sure he was okay. Uh, because his vantage point, you know, at two and a half feet tall, whopping 30 inches, isn't very good. And so if we get him up five, six, feet high, he might really enjoy it. And so I saw them and the fun they're having. And like any good dad, I wanted to go and introduce a little bit of risk and a little bit of danger. And so I began to teach my son, hey, if you, you know, he was holding, he would be sitting on a branch and you hold the next branch next to him. If you let go of the branch and you lean forward, I'll catch you. And so we did it a couple of times, and uh, I, would, I would even like wait just a little bit longer, you know, as I'm falling down to catch him and snatch him out of the air before he hits the ground. And uh, we decided to do it one last time, just to get it on video. My mom wanted to do it slow-mo, not because it's like the most exciting in the world, but because my son would really like it. Um, so the last time, I set him up on the, on the branch, and he, gra- he grabbed the other branch near him to steady himself. And I said, all right, Winston, jump. And uh, he let go of the branch. He leaned forward. And then at the last moment, there was this moment of hesitation. You can see it, this moment of hesitation. And he kind of leans back. And that changes everything. His balance and his momentum goes from going forward to going backwards. And so as, as a dad, I, I reach forward as fast as I can to go up to the branch to grab him. And as I get up to the top where his shoulders are, I just miss him. He literally falls through my hands. And so doing what a dad does, I didn't even think. I was able to spin around the branch and snag him in a complete different direction right before he hit the ground. And uh, it was one of those moments that you, you kind of like don't really think, but we actually were able to get it on video. So Abigail, if you would, would share, we didn't go to the hospital, please don't take away my kids, but Abigail, if you'd put up that video, it's like 20 seconds, it's really short. So there he goes. He starts to lean, the hesitation. (laughs) Just barely catch him in time. (laughs) For me, it was uh, one of the proudest moments of my life, proving my son that I can be a superhero too. Um, And my wife was not very happy, so... (laughs) Thankfully, we didn't have to go to the hospital yesterday. Uh, my quick thinking, and dads, there's, I know many of the dads, and you've had moments like that, but you just didn't get lucky enough to catch it on camera, so I'll take your glory for you this morning. But this reaction, this instinct to often move faster than we can think, it not only is it hardwired into dads and to parents, but it's, it's hardwired into us as people. 
We all, you know, we've grown up knowing about the, the adrenaline, flight or flight instincts. This, this thing that it's wired into our very DNA that we can begin to move and react before we even think. And this reaction and these, these flighty, this, this like flight or fight response, I think makes us sometimes a flighty and like over-responsive people. It bleeds into all parts of our life. Like when we're, when we're faced with the most severe respiratory illness in 100 years, and in one shopping trip, we buy five years' supply of toilet paper. Or when we're faced with a long line of after fireworks traffic, and we take our minivan, and we hop curbs, and drive through marshes, and up the side of mountains to get out. Or when we let a, a silent but deadly odor begin to erupt from our body, and we clear the room before everyone else is cleared or even notices. This flightiness is really good sometimes. This response to, to move into action or move away from action, whatever is required, is really good. It addresses situations fast or gets us out of danger quickly. But what I've been thinking a lot about recently is how telling it is what we run to and how we react in those moments. What I've been thinking about lately is what is revealed in our hearts and how we react to certain situations, what our first step movement towards is. I believe that a lot is said about the condition of our soul and what we truly believe on where we choose to run to in those moments of reaction. And we have the opportunity to observe this on a pretty regular basis. On um, things like when we have, what attitude do we run to when our car breaks down or something frustrating happens at work? Or what form of entertainment do we run to when we get bored or we begin to feel unoccupied? Or what relationships or friends to do we run to when we feel lonely? Or where do our thoughts run to when we see some hypersexualized image on the internet? What we move to in those moments, even in the regular everyday of life, is revealing about the state of our soul and what we truly believe. And what's even scarier is how revealing things are when crisis strikes. Where do we run when our finances begin to fall apart? Where do we run when we have a hard time connecting with our spouse and our marriage begins to struggle? Where do we run when our children begin to make foolish decisions that bring more pain and hurts in their life? And where do we run when someone close to us gets sick and passes away? My hope and my aim this morning is that we would ask ourselves clearly and soberly, where are we running to? In the pressures and concerns of everyday life, where have we trained ourselves to run to? And when the crisis of our lives strikes, in what direction is our first step? So this morning, that's what I want us to explore. And I feel like what is fitting and where this kind of came out of was when I was spending some time studying the life of King David. And there's this very unique season that we can take some, some lessons from where he is being pursued by Saul, King Saul. And King Saul was the original first king of Israel. And he was anointed by God. A lot of us forget. We think that King Saul is all this evil guy. And he actually was once anointed by God. But he disobeyed and God took the kingdom from him. And then God anointed, used Samuel to anoint David as the future king of Israel. And so after a few years, Saul's heart begins to turn angry and become murderous towards David. And so David, in a, in a few moments, realizes, oh no, I'm going to die, and he begins to run. 
And in that running, in those first steps, in whatever direction he chooses, I believe, is indicative of what he believes and the state of his soul. And so this morning, that's what I want us to explore. Just a few little snippets of where David chose to run to when he was literally on the run. And then we can ask ourselves, are we running to similar things? So the first place we're going to go is 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 15. And this is near the beginning. It's not the very beginning, but near the beginning of, of David's early running days. And it says this in the NIV, Samuel 20, 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 15. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. And you'll have to forgive me. I'll probably mispronounce some of these things. But the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this the, the, uh, this the David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gates and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, look at that man. He is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that if you uh, so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on in front of me like this? Must this man come into my house? So in his running from Saul, King David runs to Achish, king of Gath. Guess who else comes from Gath? Guess what other famous biblical character comes from that area? Goliath. And Achish was actually a Philistine king. So in David's desperation, he literally ran to one of the Philistine kings, the sworn enemy of the Israelites. In his desperation, his first step is to run to one of the former masters of the Israelites, the ones that terrorized them and did raids on them and oppressed them for generations in the not-so-distant past. And David literally runs. We actually find out that the, this is after David kills Goliath. He's carrying the sword that, that chopped Goliath's heads off. He literally runs in his desperation to the hometown of Goliath. Obviously, this doesn't end well for David because Achish, the king of Gath, kind of goes, well, maybe I shouldn't house the guy who's slain 10,000 of my people. Maybe I shouldn't have him here. And so David does what he thinks he needs to do, begins to act crazy, and they let him go. But in that moment, when David took that step towards the Philistine king, I think what was revealed is he believed that his former rulers and former masters would keep him safe. And so the question I have for us this morning is have we trained ourselves to run back to our former masters? What do we believe about the former things that have ruled over us? Do we have a habit of running to our old sins, our old addictions, and our old lifestyles? Before we became followers of Jesus, Sin was our master. Before we gave our lives to him, our addictions were the dominating power of our life. Before we declared Jesus as Lord, our lifestyles and our own wickedness was the Lord over us. And so as followers of Jesus, it's appropriate to ask, are we running to our old masters when we begin to feel the pressures of life wear us down? Do we run back into submission to the things that used to dominate us when crisis strikes. When we feel unappreciated, do we run back to social media to seek the approval of men? And what does that say how we value God's opinion of us? When we feel hurt, do we run back to alcohol or other substances to numb our pain? 
And what does that say and reveal about our trust in God's ability to comfort us? When we feel in love, do we run back to lust and sexual sin that gives us this counterfeit experience of love? And what does that show how we think of God's love towards us? And when we feel bored, do we run back to the endless slavery of entertainment to, prove our, to provide ourselves an escape from this world? And what does that show of our confidence in God's ability to satisfy us? Are we going back to our old sinful ways? And you know as well as I do that there's no life there. Sin is a terrible master. Worldly lifestyles, fleshly lifestyles are hopeless ways of life. And as someone who's struggled with past addictions and past secret sexual sins, I know this feeling too well. This feeling of my old master, even though I was a professing believer of Jesus, and I believed that God had done a work on the inside, day after day, when life began to, to wear at me, I would still go back. When I felt hopeless, it would be the place I run to. When I felt worn out and tired and stressed, it'd be the place I'd run to. And again, my old master was cruel. It left my soul more battered, more torn, and more bruised than ever before. Are we running back to our old masters? So where else did David run to? We're going to fast forward a few years. First Samuel 27, 1 through 4. And these names will ring a bell. But the, the circumstances are a little different. It says this. But David thought to himself, and this is right after God miraculously basically could have given David Saul's life. Saul, he could have killed Saul, but he chose not to. So this miraculous power of God, God's power being on display had just happened. But David thought to himself, one of these days, I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men he had with him left and went over to Achish, son of Moak, king of Gath. And David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his own family with him, and David had his two wives, Anhinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. And when Saul was told that David had fled Gath, he no longer searched for him. So David, he, he hears and he, he begins to go to his own ideas of how he could solve his own problems. He just got miraculously delivered from Saul, but he still thinks to himself, well, eventually Saul's going to get me, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and figure this out myself. And he goes back to the land of the Philistines. He actually goes back to Achish, king of Gath. And at first, it works. Saul, he doesn't, he doesn't follow him in. I'm not, he's like, not going not gonna to waste his time going to the Philistines. And eventually, David actually finds a little bit of favor with Achish. He becomes his personal bodyguard, and then Achish gives him the, this, this town called Ziklag, where he can reside and have res residence. But then things start to go sideways. And I'm paraphrasing to keep things short. But there comes a day when Achish, king of Gath, calls David to war against the Israelites. And so David responds by marching his and his 600 men to the battlefield with the intent to kill and fight in war his own countrymen and countrymen, his own family. Thankfully, the Lord kind of saves him, and the other Philistine leaders, they're like, ah, I don't know if we trust David, and so they send him home. And we think, oh, maybe that's a good ending of the story. But then when David gets home, 
we find out that the Amicalites, another kingdom nearby, had raided his hometown and stolen all of the families, all of the wives and the children of David and of his own men. And they had to go fight and get their families back. David, for a second, ran to his own devices and own solutions, and it kind of worked. But like we've experienced in our own lives, often our own man-made solutions and plans backfire. So this leads me to the question I want us to ask ourselves. Are we running to our own solutions and man-made devices? Do we put our greatest faith in the ability to solve our own problems? Are we training ourselves to trust our own plans and ideas? When we have faith in our own feeble human devices and try to solve our own problems apart from the Lord, we, like David, often end up in a worse position than we started in. Our own solutions tend to backfire. Like when we have severe financial stress and we begin to hyper-focus on our budgets, in the meantime, stirring and building up the greed in our own hearts. Or when we try to solve our own issues of loneliness. And so we find and we, run, we, we see ourselves run to relationships that are, that are unhealthy, that are destructive and painful. Or when we, we see our, our child's poor behavior and out of our own anger, we begin to correct them and discipline them. And in the process, actually provoking them to sin. Or when we feel overwhelmed and we run to our own self-preservation techniques and methods, all the while bulldozing all the people in front of us. And what do those human-conceived, man-made solutions tell of what we believe? Are we running to our own solutions? And this is a question I've been asking that really prompt this message in my heart. I'm a young man with a young family, and so I realize like the pressures in the world aren't on me, and so many of the pressures that I face are actually like inherent blessings. Like I have a house that I work on, but I stink and have a house, so I'm very thankful for where I'm at. But I do, by, day by day, feel the responsibilities on my life grow. Hour by hour, the load that I have, it feels like it, it gets heavier. And it, what is startling to me, and what is shocking to me is where I choose to run when I start to feel the pressures of life. What I've noticed in my responsibilities as the load gets heavier is my knee-jerk reaction with dealing with those things is to go to my own solutions. And unfortunately, this happens over and over again, that I have a habit of making a dead sprint to creating my own devices and solving my own problems. And so often, those backfire, just like David's Philistine solution did. My own solutions end up with me being more tired, more stressed, being more short with my wife, and feeling disconnected and not present with my children. And honestly, it creates a sickness in the soul, something that isn't right. As a follower of Jesus, I shouldn't be feeling this way. I shouldn't be experiencing these things this way. And in those moments, what am I demonstrating about where I have my faith at? What are my own stress-fueled plans showing about my core beliefs? Now, I'm not advocating for laziness. I'm not saying that we shouldn't ever try to solve our own problems because that would be childish. That would be silly and foolish. If you have your, if you're like, our, like this week, if your toilet overflows, make sure you stop it. <laughs> but what I am saying is that there is another place that we should train ourselves to run to first. As followers of Jesus and as the people of God that we say we are, there is a place that we need to train ourselves to run to daily. And I believe David found this in 1 Samuel 19. This is our last story. It says this in 1 Samuel 19. This is, this is pretty close to the very beginning 
of when Saul, of David was on the run. It says this, when David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all about what Saul had done. Then he and Samuel went to Nioth and stayed there. And word came to Saul, David is in Nioth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the spirit of God came upon Saul's men and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it and so he sent more men and they also too prophesied. And Saul sent men a third time and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Seku and he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Nioth at Ramah, they said. So, da- so Saul went to Nioth at Ramah and the spirit of God came even upon him. And he walked along prophesying until he came to Nioth. He stripped off his garments and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all day long that, and all that night. And this is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? When I read this, reread this for the first time a few months ago, like I'd read this before in a different season of life and I was, I was shocked. Like I could not believe it. Held in contrast to all the other places, the many places that David ran, and he didn't always run to terrible places, this stands out. See, it was presumed that Nihilith at Ramah was on a hill. And Samuel would have been, obviously, one of the more well-known people. He'd anointed the kings of Israel. He would have been one of the well-known people in the nation that day. And so it wasn't exactly a secret. It wasn't exactly a hiding place for David. And Nihilith at Ramah was also thought to be a school. So this wasn't exactly a fortress. But what was unique is that Nioth at Ramah was a school for the prophets that Samuel had set up in his later years. This was literally the place where people practiced practiced prophesying and proclaiming the very promises of God. When David ran to Samuel and all the other prophets at the very place where the presence of God was causing and provoking people to declare truth in God's word and God's promises, and to, uh, to go to the person that he had himself had been anointed by to be king, this is the place of all those places that he was the most secure. It was only in the place of God's presence and promises at Ramah, at Rama, not Gath, not Ziklag, not in the wilderness, that God sovereignly incapacitated three groups of soldiers sent to capture him. It was only in the place of God's promises and prophecy and words being, word being declared, not in the fortresses, not in Moab, not in the hidden caves, where a heart, a heart of a man who was a king with murderous intent was stopped dead in his tracks, stripped naked, and began to prophesy and declare the same promises of God. David had run back and took security in the promises of God with the prophets and with the man who had declared him the king of Israel. David ran to the promises of God. So are we running to the promises of God? Is this our practice? In the pressures of everyday life, are we running to God's promises? In the fires and the crises of life, are we running to the promises of God? If we first run back to our old simple ways, they will prove to be cruel and terrible masters. If we first run to our own devices, our own solutions, they will inevitably backfire on us all. But if we first run to God's promises, that's where we are most secure. That's where we're going to find the greatest sense of safety, the greatest amount of peace, the greatest joy, and the greatest hope. Even in the midst 
of the evil raging around David, the anointing of God, the call that he was going to be the future king of Israel remained, and it was never invalidated. Even in the midst of being pursued by the most powerful man in Israel, God's promises were still true. And even in the midst of everything else being shaken in his life, God's words over David were immovable and unchanged. And the same is true for God's promises over us. And if you didn't know this, there are a great many and precious promises that God has for you. My question is, are we running to his promises? Have we made a habit and a practice of this? Do you really believe that God is good enough to keep his promises? Where do you run in the daily pressures of life when your roommate makes a mess and loudly bangs around the apartment? Do you get bitter? Or do you too remember that you have been forgiven? Where do you run when your spouse makes a cutting remark? Do you fight back or do you remember that self-control is a fruit of your salvation? Where do you run when you get hit with that large unexpected bill? Does anxiety become your master again? Or do you step into the peace of God? And then where do you run in the crises of life? When you feel powerless to addiction, do you run to the promise that God has broken since power over you? When you lose your job or your business fails, do you run to the promise that God alone is your provider? When your family falls apart or your spouse abandons you, do you run back to the promise that God of the Father will always affectionately call you son and daughter? And when someone near and dear to you passes away, do you run to the promise that death does not have the final say? Worship team, Scott, if you want to come up, I'm going to come to a close. King David experienced this blessing, this protection and provision inside of God's promises at Ramah. As men dropped to the ground, incapacitated, like they were paralyzed because they couldn't help but but the promises of God coming out of their mouths. This was amazing. This was unreal. This was unprecedented. But I think we have much better promises to stand on than David did. I know he was anointed to be the king of Israel, and I know it was prophesied that his throne would last forever, and I know he had access to the great prophet Samuel. But we have far better promises than David did. You guys might know this scripture. 2 Corinthians 1, 19-20. It says this. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no. He is the one whom Silas, Timothy, and I preach to you as God's ultimate yes. He always does what he says. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with the resounding yes. And through Christ, our man, which means our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. The person of Jesus Christ is our greatest promise. God's greatest promise to humanity, to you and I as individuals, is contained and withheld alone in the person of Jesus. He is God's ultimate yes. He always does what he says. All of God's promises are fulfilled in Christ of the resounding yes and amen. And if you don't believe this, let's take a moment to consider the promises that Jesus has already fulfilled. Jesus is the one who was prophesied to come that would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the one who was cursed as he hung on a tree. 
Jesus is the one who was pierced for our transgressions. This is all Old Testament prophecy. Jesus is the one whose punishment brought us peace with God. Jesus is the one whose sacrifice purchased our freedom. Jesus is the one whose wounds have provided us healing. Jesus is the one whose victory caused death to lose its sting. Jesus is the one who still bears the scars of your and I's redemption on his physical glorified body. Jesus is the one who's interceding right now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the son of David, the promised son of David, whose throne will last forever and his governance will know no end. And Jesus is the one whose blood will stand as your only protection between a holy, just, and fierce God. Jesus is God's greatest promise. His promises, he alone, should be the one that we run to. And so are we running to him? Have we trained ourselves to run to him? In our moments of loneliness and despair, are we running to him? In our moments of anger and frustration, are we running to him? In our moments of betrayal and confusion, are we running to Jesus? And when the crisis of life comes and we face extreme loss and real anguish, are we running to Jesus? My prayer is that we would be a church that does. That this would mean so much more than a Sunday morning with good music and nice words and a nice, nice message. That on the Monday through Saturday, when the pressures of life come, we would train ourselves to run to Jesus. When we feel that sickness begin to grip our souls, we go back to our old masters, our own devices, that instead we would choose to run to Jesus. All of God's promises are yes and amen and him. So are you running to Jesus? This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.